My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, The Story Podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 32, and we're reading from the NIV version of the Bible, Exodus 8, Leviticus 6, and Psalms 48. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and in your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all of your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your house may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, It will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that they were, there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land the Egypt dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will not know that I, the Lord, am in the land. I will make a distinct distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said that would not be right. 
the sacrifices we offer to the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in your eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commanded us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, As soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only let Pharaoh be sure that he does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Leviticus 6. The Lord said to Moses, If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving a neighbor about something entrusted to them, or left in their care about something stolen, or if they cheat their neighbor, or if they find lost property and lie about it, or if they swear falsely about any such sin that people sin that people may commit. When the sin is in any of these ways and realize their guilt, they must return what they have stolen or taken by extortion and what has it entrusted to them or the lost property they found or whatever it was that they swore falsely about. They must make restitution in full, add a fifth of the value to it and give it all to the owner on the day they present their guilt offering. And as a penalty, they must bring to the priest, that is to the Lord, their guilt offering, a ram from their flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priests will make atonement for them because the Lord and they will forgive for anything that they did that made them guilty. The Lord said to Moses, give Aaron and his sons this commandment. These are the regulations for the burnt offering. The burnt offering is to remain on the altar hearth through the night till morning and the fire must be kept burning on the altar. The priest shall then put on his linen cloth with linen undergarments next to his body and shall remove the ashes of the burnt offering that the fire has consumed on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he is to take off these clothes and put on others and carry the ashes outside the camp to a place that is ceremonially clean. The fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning, the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offering on it. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. These are the regulations for the grain offering. Aaron's sons are to bring it before the Lord in front of the altar. The priest is to take a handful of the finest flour and some olive oil together with all the incense on the grain offering and burn the memorial portion on the altar as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Aaron and his son shall eat the rest of it, but it is to be eaten without yeast in the sanctuary area. They are to eat it in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. It must not be baked with yeast. I have given it as their share of food offering presented to me. Like the sin offering and the guilt offering, it is most holy. Any male descendant of Aaron may eat it. For all generations to come, it is his perpetual share of the food offering presented to the Lord. Whatever touches them will become holy. The Lord also said to Moses, This is the offering Aaron and his sons are to bring to the Lord on the day he is atoned. A tenth of an Ephath of the finest flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It must be prepared with oil on a griddle. Bring it well mixed and present the grain offering broken and pieces in aroma pleasing to the Lord. The son who is to succeed him as anointed priest shall prepare it. It is the Lord's perpetual share and to be burned completely. Every grain offering of a priest shall be burned completely. It must not be eaten. 
The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron and his sons, these are the regulations for the sin offering. The sin offering is to be slaughtered before the Lord in the place the burnt offering is slaughtered. It is most holy. The priest who offers it shall eat it. It is to be eaten in the sanctuary area, in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches any of the flesh will become holy. And if any of the blood is splattered on a garment, you must wash it in the sanctuary area. The clay pot the meal is cooked in must be broken, but if it is cooked in a bronze pot, the pot is to be scoured and rinsed with water. Any man in a priest's family may eat it. It is most holy. But any sin offering whose blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place must not be eaten. It must be burned. Psalms 48. Great is the Lord and worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the heights of Zephon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. When the king joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her and were astonished. They fled in terror. Trembling seized them there, pain like that of a woman in labor. You destroyed them like ships of Tarshish, shattered by an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord Almighty, in the city of our God, God makes her secure forever. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Like your name, O God, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Count her towers. Consider well her ramparts. View her citadels that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. So Father Mike Schmidt's insights tell us some really cool things about this story, how God is telling the people who he is through the plagues in so many ways. It is clear that God does not desire to oppress. He is asking Pharaoh, he is asking us to get rid of the things that are holding us back and to deliver the child of God within us back to him for us to be reconciled, restored, and redeemed to him, and then to become the kingdom of priests that help put God on display, help others navigate their way to God, to intercede in prayer, and to stand in the gap on behalf, not block others from God, and to generously give to those in need. When we will not give or when we oppress others, he will respond. This is being made clear here. So Father Mike Schmitz also talks about the fact that God is more powerful than any other false god. He describes how the 10 plagues are or might very well be associated with the 10 very powerful Egyptian gods. When Yahweh God turns the Nile to blood, He is showing his dominance over the false Egyptian god of the Nile, Happy, a god that is supposed to control fertility or life. God turned this to blood. Yahweh God brought the frogs, which displays dominance over the Egyptian god of um, Haket, who is depicted as a frog or a woman with a frog head. Yahweh God brought lice or gnats from the earth to display his dominance over Geb, god of the earth. Yahweh God brought swarms of flies to show dominance over this beetle-like Egyptian god, Kefri, who represents the rising or the morning sun and renewal of life, but the flies brought destruction. Yahweh God brought death to cattle livestock to show his power over Hathar, the Egyptian goddess of fertility, love, dancing, and pleasure. That's coming up. Um, And these next ones represent future plagues we're going to be reading about. Yahweh God brought brings, brought, 
boils and sores to show his power over the Egyptian goddess Isis, who was invoked to help heal and protect. Yahweh God brought hail in the form of fire to show his dominance over the Egyptian god Nut, who they believed had power over the sky. Yahweh God brought locusts to show his power over the protector of Ra, an Egyptian god named Seth, who was a god of disorder, uh, the desert, storms, violence, and foreigners. Yahweh God then brought darkness to show the dominant power over the very powerful Egyptian false god Ra, who represented the sun and light. Remember, the Hebrews had been ingratiated and moved into an oppressive slavery in Egypt over the last 400 years. The gods of Egypt would be known to them, and there may be some lurking suspicions about their power. God is showing both the Egyptians and the Hebrews through these plagues that he is God over all, the Elohim of Elohims. Dr. Carmen Imes is not convinced of this in a specific sense, um, so that that each plague represents dominance over a specific Egyptian god. But she thinks more generally that the plagues attack the gods of Egypt and bring a chain reaction of chaos, sort of like a deconstruction or decreation like we've seen happen in other stories from Genesis when um, people were lost in terrible sin. She describes how some try to scientifically show the plagues are a natural chain reaction brought on by God. Interesting, for sure. Dr. Kamenheims also points to the literary pattern of the plagues where some have a forewarning, the timing is somewhat unclear and versus some are more specific, and the command of where Moses is to take his stand is sometimes clear and other times not as clear. But when you zoom out, there is this pattern. She views the plague as a form of um, uncreation, directly related back to Genesis 1, where Genesis 1 is about the creation of three realms with those assigned dominion in the realms, all and in this ordered way, um, and it's good. And here, God is disrupting the three realms and those tasked with dominion. The boundaries between um, are, are being corrupted. So the balance the Egyptians value, which there's an Egyptian word for it, I just can't remember it, is Pharaoh's task is to keep this balance. Uh, it's, he's not able to do that. He's being brought to his knees before a mightier God than Pharaoh, which I'm sure is very affronting. Um, in the story so far, we have heard how Pharaoh's heart hardened and how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is something interesting to wrestle with, right? Because like in my brain, I understand maybe like Pharaoh hardening his heart because God gave us permissive, permissive will. But when the part where it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart can sometimes be harder to um, to understand. Father Mike Schmidt says this does not have to do with God taking away his permissive will from Pharaoh, but God is essentially giving Pharaoh over to the thing Pharaoh wanted, to be away from God. God already knew um, what Pharaoh's reaction and choice with his will would be. Father Mike Schmidt describes a soft heart like wax and how it will melt in the presence of the sun. But if we allow our hearts to become clay in the presence of the sun, we actually get harder. So in that sense, I guess it could make more sense that um, in the presence of God or God is hardening our hearts because if he's sun, if he's light, and we've chosen to make our hearts clay instead of wax, it gets harder. There is a need for us to pray and remain vigilant to the state of our hearts, um, which I'm just really convicted to think about here. And then in Leviticus, we continue um, the passages. So chapters one through seven, again, in Leviticus are all about atonement. 
And sometimes I think it's important to zoom out because when you zoom in too close, you're like, I don't understand this animal grain sacrifice. But there is some sacrificing was much more common in that ancient world. But how it was being done and how the character of God is being shown through it is the part that I think is really interesting and nuanced to consider. I also love how, you know, throughout we've been reading like well if you don't have this type of animal you can bring pigeons and if you can't afford pigeons bring this type of grain if you don't have this type or you don't have this type of pot you can do this it's like god is saying wherever you're at bring what you have what you can because the point is like are you willing to acknowledge your sin and and say that you cannot be god you are not savior and that you need this wounded victor this me do you want the tree of life back? Or do you want to continue to eat from the tree of knowledge where you decide what wise is, what right and wrong is, and you make your own rules? Are you willing to give that back to me? And that's this process of um, atonement. And we learn more about God's incredible mercy and the cost of a right relationship with him. Um, And the ritual points to Jesus, who will be the ultimate atonement for our sin in the New Testament. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.